Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name's Aaron, uh, teaching pastor here. Really good to be with you. Um, I've missed some of your faces, and now I can see some of your faces. Not all of your face, but I wish I could see all of your face. But it's really, really good to be with you guys. Really excited to turn toward the text here. Um, let me just take a moment to pray, and then we're going to dive right in. And heads up, John chapter 17 is where we're going. So let's pray. Father, it's so good to be in your house with your people in your presence, able to worship, able to seek your face, not just seek you, but find you in this place. Lord, you are with us here. To one extent or another, we are aware of your presence, but what is clear both in scripture and in our own experience is that you meet with us every single time we gather. So we say, welcome, Holy Spirit. Come and speak to us through your word, through song, through prayer, maybe even through something I might say. Holy Spirit, come. Do your work in this place. Help us to join you in what you're doing in this place. We don't want to miss what you have for us, so give us ears to hear. Would you let your kingdom come and your will be done in this room, even as it is in heaven. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, John chapter 17. I got to tell you, I'm kind of coming to the text today with um, like fear and trembling a little bit. I have this sense of reverence and awe for John chapter 17. This is such a remarkable chapter. Um, And to be maybe a bit too transparent, I don't even feel remotely qualified to teach to you from John chapter 17. I just don't. Um, And I'm not being self-deprecating in that. The truth is, I don't think anybody anywhere is qualified to teach from John chapter 17. Like, every every verse in this chapter is a sacred trust. I mean, every word is a gift. Because here's what's going on in John chapter 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. So he's gathered with his disciples on the night that he would be betrayed. And he's been through a long series of teachings that we've walked through over the last few months. And here in John chapter 17... He just begins to pray for us. I want us to think about what an incredible gift it is that we get to look at, study, learn from the prayer that Jesus prayed from his heart for us. Not just for his disciples, he's explicit about this, but for all of us. And um, it's such an incredible gift that, again, I, I sort of approach reverence and awe toward John chapter 17. Hopefully we remember what we learned from John chapter 16, which is actually the Holy Spirit who is our teacher, all right, and who will lead us into all truth. And so here's what I'm hoping for and what I've been praying for for the last few weeks about this, and this is actually the most important thing I'm going to say today. So maybe after that you can play Candy Crush or something. But the most important thing is this. I really hope and pray that every day this week you'll take just a couple minutes, just a couple minutes, and read through John chapter 17 each day, once a day. Just work your way through it, just a few minutes. Read through John chapter 17 and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you and teach you. He's the one who can take your hand and walk you through this text far better than I. And that's the most important thing. Now, the other thing we're going to do, I'm still going to say some stuff, and hopefully you'll still pay attention. The other thing we're going to do is we're going to limit the scope. Uh, So we're only going to talk about this for two weeks. We could spend months in John chapter 17. We're only going to spend two weeks. We're only going to focus on four verses and on one subject, which is unity. So we're going to look at verses 20 to 23. Let me go ahead and read those verses to you now. Remember, this is Jesus' prayer. 
He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, referring to the 11 who were in the room with him at the time, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. So that would be all of us. Verse 21. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me. Could you, <laughs> you can spend all day thinking about that and not waste any time. I have given them, Jesus says, the glory that was given to me from the Father. That's, whew, I'm not even going to get there. So they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. All right, so we're going to talk about unity. And what I want to highlight here is just the obvious. I'm, I'm not going to interpret this. I'm not going to break this down. I'm just going to point out what is explicitly stated. Jesus makes some incredible, far-reaching promises connected to his church being unified. As a result of our unity, verse 21, he says this will happen. The world will believe that you sent me. So what that's talking about, what he's saying, again, explicitly, I'm not interpreting here. He's saying the validation of Christ as the Son of God, the Son of God sent by God as the Messiah, that will come from the church being unified. And verse 23, he says, the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. So before we talk about this big picture, let's just talk about this small picture here. The Father loves us as much as he loves Jesus. Jesus, okay, God the Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus Christ. I don't know how you can believe that. I believe that. I also don't believe that. That's unbelievable. Apparently, apparently, this is this is really something we can get here because Jesus was perfect and sinless and never failed. And uh, all of you have. I don't even have to know you personally. I just know that you have, okay? Some of you, I could tell stories, but I know that for all of us, we've all screwed up a million times, and yet all of us are as loved by the Father as Jesus Christ himself. It's almost as if our sins and failures do not reduce the love that the Father has for us. But the larger thing that he's saying is this message that God loves the world as much as God loves Jesus will be communicated to the world when his church is unified. You guys see what he's saying? He's saying the salvation of the world comes by way of the church's unity. That's what he's saying. I'm not like breaking this down. We're not digging into the Greek here, guys. That's just what he says. The most important message in all of human history, for God so loved the world, that is a message that is only delivered to that world on the wings of a church that is actually walking in unity together. I hope you realize this. I really hope you realize this. If not, you will from now on. Every single week we gather, and as we close our service, we say our prayer together, and we ask God for this. Do you remember? Unify us in heart, soul, and purpose. Why? that the world might know your love. It's lifted directly from this text. As we are unified in heart, soul, and purpose, the world will know the love of the Father. 
There's no exaggeration in this. I just, the, the perpetuation of the gospel is what's at stake in our unity. The salvation of the world is what's at stake in our unity or lack thereof. Like I'm trying to think of the most dramatic way to put it and it still won't be hyperbole, okay? The eternal fate of all mankind. <laughs> the eternal fate of all mankind hinging upon you and I walking in unity. The church being unified. And this is why I'm just going to be transparent for a few minutes here. Maybe too transparent. If so, I'm sure you'll tell me. But um, this is why, I honestly, there's a weight on my soul that I've been carrying around for the last few months. And it's something, I know it's spiritual, and I've really been grieving the division and the polarization in our society. I know many of you have as well. Many of you have as well. And, but I'm carrying it so heavily. It's just different. It's just different. Maybe it's the uniqueness of our time. Maybe it's the work of the Lord in my heart. I'm not so sure, but I'm, I'm carrying this tremendous weight about the deep divisions in our society that seems so intractable and incurable. And, and I've talked about this a number of times, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll reference it again today. I, I've talked specifically about political polarization. I, I just want to clarify about that. Um, when I talk about my heart being broken over political polarization, I want to be clear. It actually doesn't have anything to do with politics. I'm not actually all that concerned about us being that politically divided. <laughs> we kind of always have been, and I know it ebbs and flows, and I'm not enough of a historian to really map that out. And I'm not really politically motivated or politically driven. I don't tend to see answers in politics, and so... I tend to undermine, to a fault, by the way, the significance of that. And so when I say I'm concerned about political polarization, it's not the politics of political polarization, it's the polarization that I'm concerned about. And what I'm really concerned about is that Christians are dividing over politics. That, oh no, come on. That. You know, when these deep divides come, come, you know, I, I, I envision, you know, cracks in the surface. When these deep divides make their way through our society, deep and seemingly intractable, when they come upon the church, the solid rock upon which it stands, those divisions should not apply. And increasingly, I'm seeing that they just are. They just are. And what I think Jesus, I mean, he's so very clear about is that the perpetuation of the gospel, the eternal fate of all mankind hinges upon our unity. And we're going to let ourselves be divided over politics? Oh, come on, not that. Not that. Let's just, let's not, not for that. You know? What I keep thinking of is, um, and if you're a Sunday school rat, you'll know this story. When, when Esau gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup, that's what this feels like. like we're going to give up. We're, we're going to forfeit our capacity to communicate to the watching world the love of God for the sake of political squabbles? No, no, not that. Not that. Anything, honestly, anything but that. And yet I see it happening more and more. 
The thing is, when I look at the life of Jesus, I see, I see something very, very different. You know, Jesus lived at a very politically in- intense time and space, more so than, I know we're in a heightened political environment, Jesus far more so. Remember, they were occupied by an oppressive government, and the empire of Rome had them under their thumb, and I'm betting the way people felt about politics in that society was a little bit stronger than even we feel about politics in this society. And everybody who encountered Jesus at one point or another, everybody who cared about, he cared about, at one point or another, they were leaning on him and trying to get him to capitulate to the demands, to use his religious platform to put his finger on the scales of a political discussion. And time and time again, he refused to do it. And he was really clear, guys, you're talking about earthly kingdoms. My kingdom's not of this world. I'm actually about something way bigger. And long after every empire you've ever conceived of is gone and replaced a few times over, I'll still be sitting on the throne of heaven and the work that I'm doing, the kingdom I'm establishing here will still remain. What I'm doing is like way bigger than that. It's way bigger than that. Um, I'll tell you something else too. I'm I'm a little embarrassed about this because it was I was honestly I was just naive to do this, but here's what I did. I'll confess it nevertheless. Um, when it became clear to me uh, at whatever point, sometime in March, I guess, that this coronavirus thing was it was going to be around, and it was going to be a long protracted battle, and the stakes were going to be really 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 high. Here's what I, I thought to myself. I thought our nation's really divided right now. And which is not a historical anomaly at all. We usually are really divided, okay? So I don't want to make it like this is some exceptional moment. Our nation's really divided right now. But, but, historically, we do really, really well when we have a common enemy. We rally together as a nation and unify when we have a common threat that we have to push against. I think of World War II. And honestly, when COVID hit and it was clear that this thing's going to be here for a while and it's going to threaten and compromise virtually every part of our lives, then I thought to myself, and I know it was naive, but I thought to myself, this could be, we could rally around this. We could unify around this. We could, this could be the common enemy. We could be more unified as a country than we have been in decades. (laughs) And I think that's what set me up for the disappointment to be all the more stark when the pendulum swung very much the other way. And we became all the more divided, all the more entrenched. We dug in all the more around our differences. Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. Solomon was on to something. And last week I was on the phone with a pastor. He's a friend of mine. He's in a very, very large, influential city in this country. Everybody knows this city, big city. And there are two, he was telling me, two very large churches, mega churches, each with thousands and thousands of people. And one of them is pastored by a man who is uh, very vocal about his position on the political right. The other church is led by a pastor who's very vocal on his position to the political left. Um, One of them was there on January 6th in Washington when the insurrection ensued at the Capitol. The other one has uh, not only attended, but helped um, catalyze, I guess, or bring together a number of protests and rally on the side of the political spectrum. And here's the thing. These two men leading these churches, each with thousands of people, have been 
publicly skewering one another on social media, from their pulpits. Each of these men have stood up when they're supposed to be imparting the word of God, godly men, to thousands of people and openly ridiculed the pastor across town. My friend was telling me that he was in a prayer group that meets with pastors who gather and each of these men are in it and they've had to cancel their gatherings because these two men can't behave themselves because they're so at each other over a political discourse. All this is happening. They're leading megachurches in a major city. All this is happening when Jesus made it incredibly clear that our capacity to communicate the love of God to the world hinges upon our unity, and these pastors are using their platform to skewer one another. Don't think for a second they aren't throwing parties in the pit of hell over that nonsense. It's absolutely devastating. If we at all believe the words of Christ to us, Jesus said, my kingdom, no, 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 My kingdom's not of this world. I'm doing something way bigger. And right here in this same chapter, in verse 16, Jesus said this. He said, they do not belong to this world, referring to us. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. First of all, think about that for a minute. You don't belong to this world any more than Jesus belonged to this world when he was here in this earth. And so it's true for him. It's true for all of us. We're waving a much higher flag We're waving a much higher flag, a kingdom not of this world. I just think I want to teach you a fancy word. Um, Anna can explain it better to you. But there's this word called syncretism. And what syncretism is, is when basically there usually happens when there are two very dominant religions in the same culture. What happens is over time, those religions, because of poor teaching or lack of understanding, begin to blur together. And they create this third thing that's like a, like a mix of the two. That's called syncretism. Here's the thing. We have syncretism. Listen. We have syncretism happening in our country like I've never seen before. It's the blurring of our Christian faith and the blurring of politics. And you might push back and say, well, politics isn't a religion. It's not supposed to be. But it is. And I see the blurring of these two religions, the forfeiting in some cases along the way of our very foundation. And it's devastating. Now, let me clarify something. I think this is really important. Uh, And then mercifully, I'll change the subject. (laughs) Okay. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't reach into politics because it sure does. And when the Bible does reach into politics, it's a gift to us because we can be clear on those subjects, okay? Because the Bible has final authority. We're Bible people around here. The Bible has final authority and say the final arbiter on all issues. So when the Bible reaches into an issue, then we know where we stand on those issues, and it often does. I'll give you a couple obvious examples. The Bible teaches the sanctity of life, and it teaches the sanctity of marriage. I will always teach and believe the sanctity of life and the sanctity of marriage. I will do so from this text. The Bible reaches into politics sometimes, and it's a gift when it does. What I am saying, what I am saying, is that politics will never, ever reach into my Bible. Amen? I know we're not like a big amen church, but come on, y'all, that was it. You missed it. (laughs) I'm trying to get you there, but it takes... And I'll confess one more thing to this end. As I said earlier, um, I tend to minimize the role of politics, and I'm wrong about that. It's more important than I tend to think of it. It is. But, but let's just say that got calibrated in my mind, like God turned the knob and I understood it rightly. 
And then let's take the importance then, that now elevated importance of politics, and let's multiply it by, by 1,000 or 10,000. Listen, that's really, really important. It's still not this important. Do you understand? It's not eternal fate of all mankind important, no matter how important it is, because only the gospel is eternal fate of all mankind important. So I thought about this, I remember. Sometimes people ask me, Aaron, when did you know you were going to be in ministry? And the really weird but kind of honest answer to that question was, I was five years old. I was on the other side of Blount County at um, Heritage Church of God, and Reverend Monty Stevens was preaching his face out off about the gospel and the love of God. And I remember a five years old thinking, if this is true, then this is the most important thing, period. And I thought, well, if this is the most important thing, period, then I'm going to give my life to it. That was, I, don't, I, mean, I had no idea what I was saying at the time, but that was the moment. Because there's just, there's nothing more important. And so we can't forfeit our unity for anything. For anything. Unity's key. And we have to defend it. And because of that, because of that, I want to take a minute here and, and kind of define what unity is and isn't, and that's going to be all the time we have, so... And I don't know how even how far we'll get with that. But uh, let me just say a couple things to that end. Number one, uh, unity, unity is not uniformity. Okay? Please understand. This is very, very important. Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity, where everybody looks the same, thinks the same, talks the same, acts the, that is boring. It is boring. It is uninspiring. And can we be honest? Creepy. It's creepy. And the Bible never, ever commands it or anything like it. You ever go to a church and every, like, everybody is exactly the same? I mean, I mean, the, the girls are all wearing like just different variations of the same dress and different variations of the same hairstyle. And the men are all wearing different variations of the same suit. And the pastors are all wearing ties with Bible verses. Except for the worship guys got a keyboard, you know. <laughs> like everybody's, they talk the same, they think the same, they act the same, they pray the same. Everything. And it's creepy and you step into that environment, you should be nervous. You should be nervous, because the Bible never aspires to uniformity, ever. What we see really common, and that's a bit of an extreme case, but what we see is really common is you can walk into a church, within a few minutes, you'll know, oh, this is, this is a that type of church. This is a worship church. We're going to worship for 90 minutes. We might hear a sermon, we might not, but this is a worship church. We're going to get after it. That's what they care about. Or this is a missions church. Just look for the flags, all right? There are flags from every country in the world. This is a missions church. This is what they care about. This is what they talk about. This is what every offering's for. Or you can walk into a church and go, this is a theological accuracy church. And everybody's carrying like 75-pound Thompson chain reference Bibles. They all have got like a back thing and a limp because they're carrying around their massive Bible everywhere that they go. And everything is about theological accuracy. And you go to the next church, and this is a social justice church. And this is what they think about. This is what they talk about. This is what they care about. You go to a holiness church, and that's real clear too. It's everything, every message, every idea is don't, don't, don't drink or chew or go with girls who do and definitely don't say bad words or get tattoos or God will fall off his throne. I mean, it's like really holiness church and it's so obvious and I could go on and on and on and on. And I think about that dynamic happening in the life of so many of our churches. And then I look at Jesus' disciples, just the 12 dudes he grabbed at the beginning and how dramatically different they, y'all realize it's a miracle they didn't murder each other day one. And God put that group together and said, we're going to turn the world upside down, and they did. It's clear that Jesus was never after uniformity. 
Or you look and you read Revelation and you get these pictures of what heaven's going to be like. And it is very clear that God was never after. And we aren't headed toward uniformity. So unity is not uniformity. Let me give you a little bit of an idea from one angle what unity might look like within a church and within churches. Um, We need deeply, uh, we need theological diversity those two words do not often get put together. We need theological diversity within orthodoxy. I keep pointing to the ground because I just picture this shared foundation that we stand upon. That's orthodoxy. Okay, the core tenets of our faith, our belief in our need for a Savior, in Christ as that Savior, in the authority of Scripture, and on and on we could go. The core tenets of who we are. We need to stand together in unity on that shared foundation, majoring on the majors, minoring on the minors, and within that, on that shared foundation, we can have a tremendous amount of theological diversity and we'll be served by it. Guys, there are a lot of things that the Bible leaves open to interpretation. There are a lot of gray areas. There are a number of issues where you can build a really solid biblical argument on either side of the discussion. And for us to break fellowship over those things is nonsense. In fact, Romans 14, Paul calls them disputable matters. He explicitly tells us, do not argue over over disputable matters, and we've been breaking that commandment for 2,000 years. And some people would say, you know, we we don't need to all be the same, you know, that caricature that I was painting earlier, but we do need to all believe the same stuff. And I would say we need to believe the same shared foundation of orthodoxy. But within that, we don't have to believe all of the same things. Let me tell you something, and this is my opinion, so you can take it or leave it, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. (laughs) Take it or leave it. I think that on those difficult, disputable matters, on those theological hot-button issues, I think the position that we land on is fueled as much by our personality and our background as it is by our rigorous study of Scripture, I think that's just true. I think your socioeconomic background changes the way you read the text. I think your personality and wiring change the way you read the text. I think that's inescapable. And so what happens is, and stick with me on this, people decide we need to stand on the same foundation, and then they decide we need to also believe all of the exact same things. And they go, okay, well, I believe this about free will, and I believe this about free will. And they go, okay, we need to split on that ground. And we're going, to have, we're going to have all the people who believe in a free will in this group and all the people who don't believe in a free will in this group. We're splitting on theological grounds. But what people do not realize is when you split on theological grounds, you're also splitting on socioeconomic grounds. You're splitting on cultural grounds. You're splitting on the lines of personality and spiritual giftedness for the eyes you have to view the world. And so you didn't just split on free will. You split on a whole bunch of things in that one moment. And everybody starts to look a little bit more alike and think a little bit more alike. And then that this group splits a couple more times, and this group splits a couple more times, and splits a couple more times. And before you know it, by it's all settled in, 2,000 years later, we're all standing on our own little theological corner where everybody not only believes all the exact same stuff, but they look the same, they act the same, they sound the same, they pray the same, they think the same, they view the world through the same lenses. They're culturally monolithic, they're socioeconomically standing in the exact same world. 
whatever church. I'll tell you how. Dream pictures that I was telling about where you know it's the missions church, or you know it's the Bible church, or you know it's the whatever church. I'll tell you how. Decades of theological inbreeding. That's how. That's how. And philosophical along with it. And political along with it. And what we end up with, the net result of that, listen, this is very important. Paul gave us this really beautiful picture of the body of Christ and every member doing its own part. You guys remember that, church kids, Sunday school rats? Remember that? You got the hand doing the thing, hand thing and the feet doing the feet thing, and they're all working together as one body. But what I'm talking about, what we end up with, is a collection of noses on one side of town and a collection of feet on the other side of town. You got all the hearts on one corner of the street and all the lungs on the other corner of the street. And you don't have a body operating as a body. You have a series of silos that don't reflect the body of Christ, that don't communicate the unity that will draw the whole world to Christ and to the embrace of his love for that world. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is that shared foundation I was talking about, the core tenets of our faith, our need for a Savior, our hope in Jesus alone for salvation, the truth of Scripture, the narrative of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, renewal. If we have the same beliefs about Jesus, we stand on that foundation, but we come to different conclusions about free will, then we can remain in unity with one another, in fellowship with one another, loving and serving and sacrificing for one another. We don't have to break fellowship. If we stand in unity on who Christ is and his place in our lives, and we come to different conclusions about politics, we can continue to love and serve one another in unity. We can continue to sacrifice and lay our lives down for one another, crossing political aisles to do so. If we believe the same things about Christ and Scripture, and we have that shared foundation, and we have a different perspective on women in leadership, I'll just honestly tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to try really hard to change your mind. And it's not going to work because people don't really change their mind. And then we can stand in unity on the same shared foundation of orthodoxy. And we can serve one another and love one another and sacrifice for one another and care for one another. And when the world sees it, they'll be drawn. When the world sees not uniformity, because the world understands ultimately uniformity is born out of division. And they see real unity. When they go, that guy is a raging Republican, and that person is a raging Democrat, and they're laying down their lives in service to one another, then people will, they will believe that Christ was the Messiah sent by God, and they will believe the love of the Father for the world, because that's what Jesus said would happen. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Now, here's the deal. I don't know all of you, but I, I know just about all of you pretty well. And here's, here's my assumption. And once again, it's an assumption, but I think I'm probably right. I would think that virtually all of you are like, amen. I mean, not actually amen, because I can't get you guys to do that, but, but amen. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm on board. So I'm going to assume that. Here's the real question. And Dave, you can come on up, man. Um, The real question is, and this is it, how do we move past that shared mental ascent and move into application? I'm mostly going to talk about this next week. I don't really have a conclusion. I'm just going to stop in a minute. But I guess that's where we're headed. How, how, 
how do we work toward that type of unity? If it's that important, if it's eternal fate of all mankind important, then we have to do more than hope for it. We have to fight for it. We have to, we have to demonstrate it to a watching world. And when they see unity that they wouldn't expect, unity in the midst of diversity, they'll be drawn. Because that's what Jesus said would happen. It has to be seen. We can't just stop it going, yes and amen. Unity, let's do it. It has to be demonstrated. And so back to the most important thing I've said today, which is that sort of shameful begging I did early for you to read John chapter 17 every day this week. I would like to again encourage you to read John chapter 17 every day this week. And as you do, consider how we might not only just aspire to this, but walk in this measure of unity and demonstrate it. How do we put it on display? Because answering the questions like way more important than I can even communicate. All right, so we're going to have Selah as we do every week. It's a couple minutes to pray and focus, reflect. And uh, a lot of times that's just stillness and silence. So I'm going to get us started with that. I'll, I'll pray for you and then I'll, we'll, we'll be still for a moment. Then after that, we'll make our way to the table of grace. So Lord, we welcome you to speak to us now. Lord, we thank you for your presence, your kindness to us. Lord, I guess first we could say, would you somehow help us to believe a little bit more this unbelievable thing that you said earlier about how the Father loves us as much as he loves you, Jesus? Oh. Can that just sit over our entire conversation here? The Father loves us the way, the way he loves the Son, in spite of all our failures, and foolishness, ridiculousness <laughs> there is this pure pure unconditional love from the father to each of us Lord we want to pause now perhaps to repent if this notion of syncretism of somehow our Christian faith blending with our political perspective, whichever side it might be or however nuanced it may or may not be. We welcome Scripture to speak into our politics. We insist that politics will never speak into our Scripture. So Lord, if we need to repent of that happening, of welcoming a false God, then Holy Spirit come, convict and challenge, bring us to repentance, Give us faith to receive your forgiveness and restoration. Holy Spirit, come. We will have no other gods before you. You alone are king. You alone. Kingdom not of this world. God, I ask that you would begin to create hope and healing in hearts that are broken. I know that my weight 
over the division in our society is not mine alone. Probably shared by virtually all of us. Would you come and would you heal and would you help us to see, God, the potential in that? The potential that the church might be the beautiful exception to the deep division that's all around us. Would you begin to show us how we might not only be the exception, but demonstrate it?